Hey everybody, welcome to the Science Facts and Fallacies podcast brought to you by the Genetic Literacy Project. I'm your host, Cameron English. And I'm your co-host, Kevin Fulta, a professor who cares about science communication. This is the weekly show where we discuss the biggest stories from the Genetic Literacy Project to keep you informed about groundbreaking developments from the worlds of science and medicine, and of course, to help you separate facts from fallacies as you read the headlines. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Cameron and Kevin here with you as always, episode 195 of Science Facts and Fallacies. Kevin, what's going on? 195 episodes of Science Facts and Fallacies. Yeah, uh, everything's cool. Yeah, we're having fun. Yeah, it's uh, getting closer to the holiday time of year. We're having fun on the farm, processing turkeys and all that good stuff. So good times there. And then, you know, wrapping up a semester at the university. So get, coming down to the wire. But some big stuff coming up. We'll talk about maybe next week. How fun. Oh, I'm intrigued. I don't even know what's going on. This is exciting stuff, man. Should I even bother guessing or should I just hold off? Oh, take a guess. You're opening a mini golf course. Uh, good, good, that good guess. <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, yeah. All we'll right. Keep, we'll put my guessing aside because that one was quite stupid and we'll just get into our stories, which is why everybody's here. So first up, do doctors rely on BMI too much? Undue focus on weight can lead to patient distrust and delayed care. Next up, why sustainably produced lab-grown meat might be a pipe dream. And finally, the creepiest story I think we've ever covered, Kevin, ancient homo sapien diets included <laughs> grains, veggies, and other people. Yeah. Cannibalism was the norm in early human societies, according to some recent research. Whew, that'll, be, uh, that'll be an intriguing one. Okay, Kevin, what's going on here with this BMI stuff? Well, BMI has always seemed like kind of a bogus metric to me. And uh, the idea is, well, this this was something that that was originally referred to as Coilet's metric. And it, it is just this kind of mathematical relationship between your total weight versus your uh, height and weight. And that very simple, or your height versus your weight, very simple combination comes up with this idea of body mass index. And it seems to be kind of a bogus metric in a lot of ways. And you can imagine why right off the bat. Let's say that you're one of these uh, weightlifter dudes who's you know putting on a lot, of, a lot of muscle mass. You will be high on the BMI list because you're going to weigh more than, than the healthy range because your weight will exceed your, the norms for your height because you're putting on this lean tissue. So it's kind of a bogus metric in that there's a lot of other factors that can play into it and kind of give it um, a, a false indication, or at least, you know, if you discuss or, or rate yourself by BMI, there could be some mistakes that are made. The other problem is that it is extremely conservative in that um, I look at my BMI and by all any measures in BMI, every time, you know, I, talk to a doctor about it. They go, you're overweight and you should fix that. But you know, I'm, I mean, I'm a touch over, I'm six to 210 and that's not too bad. And I do have a lot of good weight on me still, no matter what from lifting stuff all the time, which I do more and more around the house. Um, so, uh, all of this stuff together really says that this method of assessing a health metric like blood pressure, heart rate, whatever 
is probably suspect. It turns out it does more bad than good because when you look at this in the broader context, which is what this article is about, is that it really misclassifies people based on their health. And it has some essential deal breakers that when you walk into a doctor's office and you say, I'm 62210 and they say, well, Tubby, you <laughs> looks like you better you know, <laughs> put down those snack wells, right? It, it means it, it automatically has some other issues that if you're showing that we are walking in the door and the conversation killer is the, based on BMI, it kind of destroys the trust you have with your healthcare provider, or at least puts a barrier in with your healthcare provider. And that's what this article really went on to show that there, it just was an unproductive metric that led to uh, break good conversations and really amplify body dissatisfaction and shaming, you know, when you stretch it, you know, when you look at it to, to its wider effects. So that was the major gist of this particular article. Right. Um, I don't know how to put this politely. So I'm just going to say that I think this article is ridiculous and uh, l- let me explain why. So early on, there's this, I, I guess this might be the thesis. So the author says, A growing body of research on weight stigma in medicine has identified routine BMI assessments as a key barrier to care for people living in larger bodies and for others experiencing weight-based shame. So first off, this this argument we're having right now, this is not because someone all of a sudden did some new study and they said, oh, hey, we discovered that the BMI isn't particularly helpful. This is being pushed by a social movement that is trying to reorient the way we think about obesity, right? We don't say overweight people or obese people. We say people living in larger bodies. So that's my first problem is that this is, this is a cultural influence that is pushing its way into a scientific discussion. It's a lot like what we discussed when I was on Dr. Phil, mm-hmm. right? This is this, the, the conversation is being reshaped, not because we have new data. Um, that's my first problem. And I, I think everyone can acknowledge, and everybody does as far as I know, that BMI is a very rough proxy for your metabolic health. That said, the people <laughs> who are complaining about BMI are not the people who are affected by the inaccuracies of BMI, right? This article was not written because there's a bunch of weightlifters who are walking around the gym crying tears because they're being judged for their weight. This is That's not what this is about, right? It's because frankly, and again, I say this as someone who was obese for most of my life. This article was written because there's a lot of overweight people who don't like the idea that the choices that they make um, affect their health. And so instead of confronting that directly, but respectfully, we're just going to make all of society change the way we talk about this issue. So I'll stop there. Go ahead and weigh in because I could just go off for like 20 minutes on this. No, I, I agree with you on that. I mean, the article kind of was all over the place. It was hard to tell where it was going and why it was going. Um, the big deal was just that when they, uh, their, their thesis, I guess, does kind of make some sense in the idea that this is has nothing that can happen other than uh, shaming effect, right? It can only have negative effect with folks who are mischaracterized by it and that that has significant costs. And they started to wander even into things like weight discrimination and the cost of weight discrimination being in the billions of dollars, like $400 billion or whatever. These kinds of um, things are only amplified by metrics like BMI, which are sloppy ways to assess one's health. 
And I, I think that's really the, the, and you know, that's me trying to put the most positive spin on, on kind of a lousy article that, that, that I can. <laughs> so your thoughts are well taken. I, I'm trying to read this with a, with a eyeball for, you know, what can I extract out of this that's positive? And really the bottom line just is that it's a, it's a lousy way to assess health. That's certainly true. And I, and I think if you went into the doctor's office and they said, well, your BMI is 37, that means you're a big fat ass. You know, if that's where the assessment stopped, then yeah, that would be a real problem. But what I find kind of annoying about stories like this is that they treat, um, they treat physicians and they treat nurse practitioners like they're idiots, you know, like, oh, the chart says that you have a high BMI. So I guess, you know, it's like they're looking right at you and they're experts. <laughs> they know that there's more to your health than this. And I'll give you just an example. When I went to see my doctor last month, I had, I had lost a lot of weight that I had gained during the lockdown because I ate junk food and drank alcohol for, you know, however long I was stuck in my house. And so she told me, you know, last year, she's like, look, you need to get this under control or I'm going to put you on statins. <laughs> I was like, oh crap. <laughs> right. So I lost the weight and then, um, you know, I got a, a follow-up assessment and I saw that she had written on my notes after the appointment. She said, um, because I've been working out, she said his build is more muscular. So, the fact that his BMI is a little bit higher probably doesn't reflect his overall health. So again, that's anecdotal, but if my physician can do that, then I'm willing to bet that most physicians can do that. So there's that. But then the final thing I'll say is that even if you look just at BMI and there's been studies on this, there was one in, uh, I believe it was in nature obesity a few years ago, 2017, I believe. But it was, it was a team of researchers who are critical of the BMI. But even in, in this review they did, they were looking at all these studies that had assessed what BMI tells you about health. And they said all of the research shows that on the highest ends of the BMI, you're still talking about people who are morbidly obese and who are at very um, elevated risk for all sorts of, of metabolic disease, you know, um, high cholesterol, type 2 diabetes, heart disease, all this kind of stuff, right? So there is a correlation. It's just that when you're trying to hone in on exactly, well, who is overweight and who's obese, um, it's hard to do if you're just looking at BMI, but there is still a correlation there. If you were to translate it to body fat, for example, or if you were to put, if you're going to try to uh, graph, you know, high blood pressure uh, compared to BMI, there would be a very strong correlation still. And so this is what's bothering me is we're using this argument over BMI as a substitute for saying, well, we're not going to criticize people who need to change their diet. And it, it bugs me. Yeah. Okay. And, and all that makes sense. I mean, when cases of morbid obesity, if you got to, if you're, if you're doing height, weight, calculations on the back of an envelope, you're probably missing the, the boat in terms of good diagnose good diagnostics anyway. You know, are you really the person that should be treating somebody if who has a weight problem, if that's how you assess it? I'm, so I, I think the basic, the basic, I never put any weight into it, into BMI. Right. And uh, I don't know anybody who really does. I mean, I mean, it's a real course metric that we probably just need to get rid of. Sure, sure. We don't have to do on this. Just, just a few, two more things I wanted to say. This whole idea about violating patient trust or public trust in medicine, it's a very valid concept. We've talked about it a lot, but the way that it's applied by the media is very selective, right? So when it comes to shaming people for their weight, everybody cares about public acceptance of science. But when it comes to firing people because they won't get a vaccine, well, who cares what that does for public trust in science? Because we told you you have to get a vaccine. 
And who cares that we kept your, your kid's school closed for six months? You know, we now acknowledge that that probably wasn't necessary and it's, Oh, sorry. You know, you know, pandemic abs, you know, amnesty, sorry, our bad, right? We're not going to talk about public trust and science then, but when it comes to this issue, all of a sudden it's like, Oh, wow. You know, if we're not nice enough to people who are overweight, well, then they won't come to their doctor. So it's just, it's inconsistency. I'm done. I'm sorry. I'm ranting again, everybody. Uh, we can, we can move on Kevin and talk about lab grown meat. <laughs> lab grown meat. What a good, <laughs> what a good concept. And, and this is an interesting one to me because I think there's something here. I, I remember back when the first reports of lab grown meat came out and they would talk about how this stuff would sell for hundreds of thousands of dollars per pound because you're actually culturing muscle cells in ways that uh, simulate meat in a Petri dish. And uh, the article is by Jessica Hemzalu in MIT Technology Review, which is usually pretty good. And I didn't, this one didn't resonate with me too much, but the article, Why Sustainably Produced Lab-Grown Meat Might Be a Pipe Dream. And we know that there has been a lot of reasons that people have sought this idea of lab-grown meat that, you know, they disagree with animal agriculture. They uh, think that uh, use of uh, antibiotics in animals is uh, causing problems in humans. I don't know how much that's really a problem because we use different antibiotics in animals. Uh, and, and rarely, you know, when an animal's sick, you use antibiotics. You, there's no sub-therapeutic use of uh, antibiotics in commercial anything these days. It just doesn't work. Um, and, uh, and the question of greenhouse emissions we talked about last week, you know, animals contribute to that, uh, usually through their belches, they can produce methane, uh, in ruminants. Uh, otherwise that's kind of a bogus argument too, because, uh, animal emissions from consumption of, of, uh, vegetable matter. So plant matter means it's carbon neutral, right? You're, you're, you're fixing carbon. Uh, from the atmosphere and then releasing that same carbon. So it's not really like it's uh, that there's something there uh, as a good argument against animal agriculture. The real question then is, you know, should we even bother doing this and like, why bother making lab grown meat? Uh, and most people who are, who are vegans or vegetarians who are in animal welfare, they go, well, I don't really want meat anyway. So you grow it in a test tube or grow it on a, on a pasture. And I I'm not, don't really care for it anyway, either way, I don't want it. And the question then is also how good can it be? I mean, the fact that we eat the meat parts of animals is because they're getting some exercise or they're moving around or they're, uh, you know, not moving or, you know, different cuts or whatever. All that stuff is, has very different qualities because of how it is raised inside the animal. So the question of whether or not this will really catch on, um, is, is really, really up in the air. The attempts to make it have not been really exciting so far that uh, doing the making food in fermenters or bioreactors, there's one product that's been approved and that's been in Singapore. They actually approved a chicken nugget that <laughs> that's been completely chickenless, um, but made from maybe made from chicken cells, I guess. I don't know. Um, they say it tastes like chicken, uh, but you grow these things in bioreactors. And, and so it, the idea is meat substitutes maybe can substitute for some, kinds of things that we already refer to as mystery meat, but uh, maybe not the big catch on that people thought it would be. 
I'm all for this technology, and I think if people want to eat it, that's great. If there's if there's a market for it, knock yourselves out. But my perspective on this has changed a little bit after reading uh, reading a little bit more into it. And I, I remember our mutual friend, Dr. Allison Van Eenenum, writing an article about this for the Genetic Literacy Project a couple of years ago. And she's an animal geneticist, so she's not uh, unbiased in this discussion, granted. But she made a very salient point, which was that um, – you know, we have we have a machine that uh, converts uh, <laughs> converts grass or whatever into nutrients we need. It's called a cow. <laughs> you know, nature has made an animal that produces these meat-based foods for us already. So these machines and the, these technologies you're trying to come up with and make them cost-effective, you you're like you're trying to duplicate something that we already have. And I thought that was a very excellent point, especially when you factor in the, the, the reality that these bioreactors run on energy and the primary source of energy still is fossil fuel. <laughs> it's coal, natural gas, oil, you know, so you have to plug these things into the wall and it's coal fired power plants that are giving them the electricity. So there's always, there's always the trade-offs that are involved in decisions like this, you know? So when you look initially and you go, Oh, well, you know, you don't have to slaughter as many animals and, you know, there's fewer methane emissions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It, it looks good, you know, but when you back up just a little bit and you look at the the other related details, it doesn't look like as as great of a an alternative as it's been sold to the public, I think. Yeah, and where it'll end up is it'll end up taking a niche or finding a niche in the things that we consume as meat that don't really matter much about their texture or uh, you know, when the meat is just kind of a vector for the uh, spices and everything else, like taco seasoning, you know, the who knows what they're shoving in a taco shell already at Taco Bell, you know. So how do you, uh, uh, things like uh, ground beef, that kind of thing, if you could make that in a Petri dish, what's the, what's the difference, you know, uh, uh, but we get it, you'll never be able to really synthesize a ribeye. And that was a point I made in the, in an Ag Daily article a couple of years ago, that's still pretty good is uh, that when they're making the artificial meats, they're making the low end products. So things like ground beef or hamburgers or hot dogs. So the mystery meats that we all enjoy are, would be suitable facsimiles made from lab grown meat, lab grown muscle. Uh, but uh, you'll never be able to really remake uh, you know, a ribeye or a filet mignon. And so, you know, animal ag, they get all upset about this. And you mentioned this on Twitter and they have people wanting to take your head off that you're, you know, they ate a Beyond Burger or whatever, which is different than, you know, la uh, lab cultured meat. And I think that animal ag needs to back off a touch and go, you know what, this thing might have a niche. It might be a solution for some of this and have some sustainability edges that we like, but damn it, you're not going to be able to make prime rib in a Petri dish. And I think that's really the way that they should approach this. Yeah, I don't think there's anything to disagree with there. I, I, what I think should be done for everybody involved is to say, look, here's what the facts are. Uh, we're going to be honest no matter what side of this debate we're on, right? So we're not going to say, well, this is going to be a great uh, innovation because you know people need to eat less meat anyway for their health. That's really not true for most people. And there's been a lot of research done in recent years sort of revising this understanding about the, the health effects of saturated fat and so forth, right? So we need to throw that talking point out of the discussion. 
because it's not true. And the same thing with the antibiotic point that you made, you know, the idea that farmers are just willy nilly, you know, throwing bottlefuls of antibiotics at their chickens, just, you know, oh, maybe it'll make them grow faster. Like that doesn't happen. It's very tightly regulated. And as you said, you can't use the FDA won't let you in many cases use the same antibiotics that are medically important for humans. And they have to be, um, I don't know if administered necessarily, but they have to be prescribed by a veterinarian, right? You can't just go to <laughs> go down to the feed store and be like, "Hey, I need some some antibiotics," right? They're over here on aisle twelve. It does. It's just it's, it's not the way it works, you know. So that would be my only concern is that we need to be honest about the points that we're making, wherever we fall on this issue. Yeah, and that's kind of what the first two things have had in common. And actually, all three of our topics have a good common thread today, don't they? They sure do, Kevin. And speaking of uh, creepy meat eating. <laughs> yeah, you can grow it in a Petri dish or you can grow it on a skeleton. <laughs> okay, what's going on here? Yeah, so this is the this is a interesting interesting one by Ross Pomeroy over a big think. Uh, ancient Homo sapiens diets included grains, veggies, and other people. Question mark. Cannibalism was the norm in early human societies, and you know, talk about the paleo diet, right? <laughs> um, Low carb, baby. That's right. Now this is and it's an interesting question because you know life on the savanna probably sucked. You know, and a lot of people have this glorious image of humans doing battle with mastodons and, you know, uh, dinosaurs if you're in Kentucky. And and it doesn't quite work that way. The Evolution Museum or whatever that was. I got it. Know. I picked yeah, up on okay. it. That was good. All right. I just had to make sure that people were in like, Kentucky, huh? Um, and, and <laughs> were there dinosaurs in Kentucky? <laughs> and there's apparently a baby Jesus riding a dinosaur. In uh, in that Kentucky museum, which I, well, I think we did a story on a couple of years ago, had to close down for renovation, <laughs> which, you know, anyway. Uh, so Dr. James Cole, who is a lecturer of archaeology at the University of Brighton, he had some hypotheses around the idea of human cannibalism from the fossil record. And you can find uh, what he believes is evidence of cannibalism because of some stuff you find on human fossils and that on when you find a skull laying around you usually don't find a cranial base which means like because if you wanted to get into the brain get the goodies out of the head you might want to come in through the bottom so would be the way to do it you just stick your spoon right in there and stir and then dig it out right like a like a pomegranate. Um, and uh, and then there is also a virtual absence of vertebrae and that, that they think that if you didn't can't find vertebrae, like they're, they're underrepresented with skeletons and they think that they were using vertebrae to boil, boil them to get all the goodies out of there. Uh, all the good uh, neural tissue, which is loaded with cholesterol and other goodies that are good for you uh, if you're living on a savanna and uh, generally starving most of the time. They can find marks on bones that look like cut marks and chop marks and that there maybe was um, that when you find remains, they sometimes are scattered with animal remains. So it looks like the things that they're eating may be in that one pile and they include some human bones and other um, types of evidence like um, human bones that are burnt you know, like, so maybe they were cooked and, uh, and what he appear to be human tooth marks and bones. So yeah, maybe there's some evidence to suggest that, uh, people were eating each other and, and that this was happening back in, uh, Neanderthal time, uh, that people were, that there actually were, 
uh, people butchering and consuming other humans. You know, I'm inclined to believe this. Obviously, we can't know for certain because we can't go back in time and see what was going on. But if you look through the historical record, you can see a, a sort of, uh, I don't know, a crassness or like a like a disregard of human life, right? So, I mean, you have you have societies like Carthage and um, Canaan in the ancient Near East, and it's described in the Bible too. You can read that, and there's other historical records where people sacrifice their own kids. You know, they burn their kids alive, and you know they hope that the gods would you know send more rain or what, <laughs> whatever. You know, you had this kind of stuff going on. I believe it was in um, ancient Rome. If if a child was born with birth defects. They would just birth it and then just throw it in the trash. And then the wild dogs that went around Rome would just eat them. So I, I, again, this isn't, I'm, I'm sort of, this is sort of a stretch I'm making here, but my point is, is that if you're willing to discard human life in those sort of settings, even after civilization has developed, it seems to me that if you're, you know, trying to avoid starvation, you'd be like, yeah, Fred's pretty useless over there. He's got that lamp. He can't do any, you know what I mean? Like I, I could see this happening. Obviously we don't know the frequency or why it was done, but it seems at least plausible to me. Yeah. And I can imagine this too. When you're on the Savannah, it's kind of uh, you know, waste, not want, not environment, feast and famine. Yeah. And probably when someone dies, you're, you know, there's a pretty good reservoir of uh, calories based upon their BMI anyway. You probably didn't have too many <laughs> obese people walking around the Savannah. Um, Sir, your comments are hurtful. And uh, there were medical doctors that had no patients because people were afraid of them back on the Savannah. Yeah. Well, they're, but <laughs> when you were, when you spent the majority of your life starving and digging under rocks for grubs right. and, and little, you know, suck, succulent twigs, there probably weren't a lot of people who were doing a whole lot of, uh, obesity back then and uh, and actually uh, we well we can get into it another time that obesity is probably related to related to the fact that we spent most of our time starving so when you came across a source of high caloric value like fat or, or sugar you gorged on it and you overate because you needed it because you were successful so those were triggers in our brains that were ignited by sweetness salt and fat but anyway um the other back to the article, the other thoughts that came across on this is that if you measured the caloric value of a human being, like how much, like, like if I were to jump into the big pot and, you know, get cooked, how much, how, how many people could I feed? And it would turn out that it was, it really wasn't very much, um, that surprisingly small. And that, it, that when you look at the, um, it's something like 145,000 calories, you know, food calories. So I uh, would feed a, a group of 25 adult humans for half a day uh, by his estimation. And so maybe not the best source of dietary calories compared to uh, a large animal that would carry lots of fat. Uh, so the the other thing that makes you think that this is probably true is that there still are cases of ritualistic can or there still were I don't know if there still are but cannibalism was common uh, in places like New Guinea even into uh, the 20th century and that's where we learned a lot about the first prion related diseases was because of humans eating human brains and uh, they would uh, give the brains of the deceased to women and children because they they would think that would make them smarter, I guess. 
And they were loaded with cholesterol and all the other goodies that are in a, in a central nervous system and turn out that they would then often suffer from degenerative neurological disease. And this was being spread by, by prions in a disease they called Kuru. Uh, and this is how they first really figured out that there was some sort of transmissible factor within the central nervous system that would go into and, and affect those who consumed it. So, uh, human cannibalism is something that is real and has taught us a lot in modern times. It's uh, it's crazy. The things that go on, you know, cause we tend to look at the world from our vantage point and go, how could that ever happen? I would never do that, you know, but you don't have a KFC on every, uh, you know, that wasn't there, right. That you couldn't just drive down to the fast food place and go, oh, I'll have a 12 piece family meal. And you, know, you, <laughs> you give them 30 bucks and, they give you, you know, twelve pieces of Kevin Fulta. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, I think it brings a new, it brings a new twist. Family to meal, yeah. Family meal, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Dave's family not looking so good. <laughs> no, they. Uh, but but that was the other thought here. Is it was this maybe ritualistic that you, that they would kill somebody as part of a ritual or a sacrifice to the group or, uh, and and that probably was true too. That there was, you know, when 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 people are, are primitive humanoids or, or hominids were trying to uh, survive, probably all bets were off and you probably did whatever it took. And if it meant like throwing somebody under the bus or onto the grill, it probably, probably could happen or whether they would uh, take maybe not within a given tribe or within a given social structure, but maybe enemies they would encounter, you know, would they kill them and consume them? And, you know, we're animals after all, you know, and, you know, certainly uh, animals will do this. And so maybe we were uh, doing this kind of thing. And I would guess that in cases of famine or extreme situations, someone dying, I mean, heck, look in the Donner party. <laughs> yeah. You know, you, know you, you get in a pinch and you look over at the guy next to you and he looks like a big drumstick. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I, again, this is sort of, I'm being sort of sarcastic here, but you know, you've heard the saying that hunger is the best sauce and things that you wouldn't normally eat all of a sudden look really delicious when you're really hungry. And I, you know, if you're at the point of starvation, you know, that guy with uh, the little extra meat on his thighs, you're like, mm, you know, I bet, <laughs> I bet that goes down smooth. <laughs> yeah. Ribs are ribs. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Baby back ribs, right? Right. Oh know, no! Oh no! Oh, chilies! You need to, you need to atone <laughs> for your slogans. Incidentally, primitive humanoids—excellent name for a metal band, Kevin. To follow up on our uh, our conversation from last week. Yeah, Homo erectus is another. <laughs> has a lot of interesting spin to it. There's a couple of bars in Chicago that were spelled that. I think. I think there was one. Seriously. You know, there's some band in Sweden somewhere that nobody has heard of, and that's what they're called. And they just play the dive bar down the street from their house, and it's really the only entertainment because you're in a tiny town, maybe. Anyways, all right, who are you following on Twitter, Kevin? I'm following Richard Lenski, Dr. Richard Lenski, at R-E-L-E-N-S-K-I. Uh, for those of you who don't know Dr. Lenski, he's either retiring or retired, and he's had the longest-running experiment in E. coli evolution. That now, uh, I don't know how many, like 75,000 generations of, uh, of changing media and running these, these, these uh, E. coli on different carbon sources and showing evolution in action. 
and showing that you can switch uh, bacteria from one carbon source to another or another other growth circumstances and actually demonstrate that evolution does happen over time. And it's an ongoing experiment. It's been going on a long time. It's going to keep on trucking. And uh, I think you should follow him. He, he publishes a lot of good stuff on his feed. So thanks, Dr. Lenski. And who do you follow? I'm following uh, Bjorn Lomberg, who is an environmentalist, yeah. but he's more of a, I, I guess you'd call him a, he calls himself the skeptical environmentalist. I just like him because he sort of puts a, a rationality check on some of the claims that people make about in, you know, environmental disaster and so forth. And I'll give you an example. He was just on Joe Rogan's show and Joe Rogan was going over this. We've talked about it on this show, actually, this, this hypothesis that, um, there's plastics throughout our environment and they've gotten into our blood and they're affecting our, our reproductive health and uh, sperm counts have actually declined because of all the, the plastic we're exposed to. And so Joe Rogan went on for five minutes about, you know, all of this research, most of which is not very good. And then Bjorn Lomberg said, you know, one of the reasons or, you know, the most likely reason is that people masturbate more today, <laughs> you know? So like in the 1950s, you could, you could measure sperm counts and they seem higher. And then today with, you know, he didn't say this part, but it's like, there's porn everywhere and everyone, you know, it pleasures themselves. <laughs> so over time it might look like sperm counts are declining and it could be just sort of an artifact in the data like this. And Joe Rogan to his credit was like, huh, I never thought of that. You know, that might make a lot of sense, <laughs> you know? So it's, it's that kind of thinking where you, you look at, at another possible explanation and you really dive into it and think through it before you go, Oh yeah, it must be the, all the plastic that we use that's, uh, you know, causing fertility issues. So all that to say, follow Bjorn Lomborg. It's just at Bjorn B J O R N Lomborg, all O's no use Bjorn Lomborg on Twitter. Well, just to, just to kind of throw a little complimentation onto that is, uh, that, you know, back in the forties and or back in, you know, back then, 40s, 50s, whatever, it was looked at as like a real negative stigma that they, you know, that religiously mm -hmm. that you would never like, you know, touch your own parts and that they would tell you that you're going to go blind. And, <laughs> yeah. and remember that? Like they would say, if you do that, you're going to go blind. And someone said, I'll yeah. stop when I need glasses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that was a thing. That was a yeah. thing. I mean, there were, I think that's why cornflakes were invented. It was something like if people have flavorful food, then they'll be more sexually promiscuous. And so we, yes. need, to make, we need to make their breakfast as bland as possible. No, that was all the dudes who were, all the Kellogg's people. Like yeah. The whole cult was like based around that. Yeah. And yeah, very interesting stuff. So, you know, yeah. So, but they should have called them cornflakes. <laughs> I don't want to know what those are. I don't want to see any videos about that. <laughs> Anyways, I just, it was just a great, great example. And then he also pointed out in this interview with Rogan, he's like, well, you know, lifespans are going up. So it would be sort of strange that year over year, we're getting healthier and healthier as technology improves. But in this one area, we're actually getting sicker and sicker. It just doesn't make sense. Right. So in other words, he just injected some very sensible thinking into the discussion that otherwise would have gone missed because Rogan sort of goes in for these goofy conspiracy end of the world stories sometimes. So it's great. So just follow Bjorn Lomberg and uh, we're going to wrap it up there for the week. Thank you as always for joining us. We'll be back next week with 196. You can follow us on Twitter at Kevin Fulta at ACSH org for my writing. 
And my website is CameronJEnglish.net. Sign up for my newsletter. And then you can contact me directly if you want to. And with that, we will see you next time.